This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley. The actor Matthew Perry died last weekend, found unresponsive in his hot tub in Los Angeles. He was 54 years old. In the last years of his life, he was best known for his efforts to discuss and combat substance abuse, including his own. Last year, he wrote a best-selling memoir detailing his own struggles with addiction. Its title was Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. But Matthew Perry became known and became a beloved television star as one of the ensemble cast members of the hit NBC sitcom Friends. That series ran for 10 seasons from 1994 to 2004, and Perry's character of Chandler Bing was a major part of its success. Hey, new wallet, huh? Oh, yeah, it was time. The old condom ring in the leather just doesn't say cool anymore. Is this a gym card? Oh, yeah, gym member. I try to go four times a week, but I've missed the last 1,200 times. Chandler was sarcastic and lovable. And when his relationship with one friend, Courtney Cox as Monica, turned romantic, the audience's delight at this pairing became a pop culture event. During the episode in which Chandler finally proposes marriage to Monica, you can hear the outburst of delight from the studio audience. But not before Monica gets down on her knees and, very emotionally, tries to propose to him first. Chandler... And all my life, I never thought I would be so lucky. Is to fall in love with my best, my best. There's a reason why girls don't do this. Okay, okay, okay. I'll do it. I thought. I can do this. I thought that it mattered what I said or where I said it. Then I realized the only thing that matters is that you you make me happier than I ever thought I could be. And if you let me I will spend the rest of my life trying to make you feel the same way. (laughs) Monica, will you marry me? Yes. (laughs) Matthew Perry began acting as a teenager appearing in individual episodes of such shows as Charles in Charge, Silver Spoons, and Beverly Hills 90210. During his 10-year run on Friends, he guest-starred on a number of other quality TV series, including Ally McBeal, The West Wing, and The Good Wife. And after Friends, he starred in an Aaron Sorkin series about television, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. That show lasted only one season— But Perry's true friendship with his friend's castmates lasted for the rest of his life. When co-starring on that sitcom, the actors negotiated together as a unit. This week, days after Perry's death, the five surviving stars of Friends issued a joint statement. It ended like this, quote, For now, our thoughts and our love are with Maddie's family, his friends, and everyone who loved him around the world, unquote. Terry Gross spoke with Matthew Perry in 2007 when he was starring in the film Numb. Written and directed by Harris Goldberg, it's about a screenwriter who is having a breakdown and is diagnosed with depersonalization syndrome. Matthew Perry, why did you want to star in Numb, which is about uh, a writer who... um, has this kind of detachment from reality through this anxiety syndrome? 
Uh, well, for me personally, I was uh, I I had uh, just taken some time off because friends had come to an end, and I was uh, I I was I afforded the uh, you know I, I was I was very lucky to be able to not have to work for a while, and I read this script and. I related to a lot of it in my in my own life. This character's isolation and this character's fear and his kind of desperate attempt to improve his life on a daily basis, I completely related to. So I read the script and then I had a, a meeting with Harris a couple of days later and we just talked about what he had gone through and what this character goes through. And I thought it was just an excellent opportunity for me to, to really do something different there was less pressure to be funny although there is comedy in the movie but it was this guy's desperate struggle to improve his life and i really related to it I, the, the character hold himself up in his house for weeks at a time i've done that in in the past and um i just thought it was an excellent opportunity to do something different for me and i was also moved by the story so you know, one of the things that most people hope to achieve by fame is desirability, that everybody will want to spend time with you. You can go to the best dinners or parties and have your choice of partners or whatever. And you're talking about identifying with the isolation that the character feels and identifying with, like, holding yourself up for weeks, <laughs> you know, at, at home. What made you want to isolate yourself or what made you feel isolated? Because um, I'm assuming you're referring to a time when you were well-known and, and could have been you know, in a very social world. I would like to say at this point that I feel that I am still very well known. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, no. What, I, what, what, what I'm, what I was talking about was, uh, I think dealing with um, friends. I got, I got that show when I was 24 years old, and the, uh, the kind of the white hot flame of fame at that point was pretty disillusioning to me. Uh, at first, it was, it was kind of everything I'd ever wanted and I was getting all this attention and it was wonderful but then you I kind of realized that it wasn't real and that it was sort of this existed in this you know kind of ether and it uh, became kind of scary to me so I spent a lot of time you know at home watching TV during that time and just not wanting to deal with reality and that's that's really what I related to most in this story what was scary just that uh the the world kind of changed overnight and uh doors that were you know closed were now open and creatively that was good um but it just you you know if if you're fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be in a situation that becomes that huge um overnight just the entire world changing is scary in and of itself you were a really like well-known public figure when you'd go through periods of like isolation or whatever and you also went through a period of being in rehab and so on and that was written up in the press so it must be really hard to go through periods like that when you're living you know under the microscope uh, it must be hard to go through periods of like that when I'm living under the microscope. Yes, uh, of course it was. Yes, I have, uh, unfortunately, a, a rather well-documented uh, history with having to deal with uh, certain issues in my life uh, on the public level. I've managed to kind of turn that around, though, for me, where it gives me uh, much more of an opportunity now to help other people who are going through uh, similar struggles. Mm -hmm. It also made it impossible for me to just go to a bar and have a drink because if you're on the cover of People magazine in rehab, you're going to turn some heads. So I, I turned it into a positive. Before you got the part of Friends, did you do verbal witty parts? Was that was that th the kind of role that you saw yourself as getting? Hmm. Uh, yeah, before Friends, uh, you know, I was auditioning for everything. And what I would find that I, the parts that I was getting was sitcom auditions and people that were at least trying to be funny. And I think that's largely due to growing up in Canada around a bunch of kind of goofy, funny people. And I just learned all these kind of comedic rhythms to make kids laugh or make girls laugh in school. And I would use those in my auditions. And Kind of nine times out of ten early on, I would get these little sitcom auditions that I would uh, go out for. And at the time, it was important to me to be on TV, and I thought it was, you know, a fun job. So um, that's certainly how it started. I mean, I got it, comedy came easier to me than 
than drama, than the stuff that I'm playing out in the movie Numb, which is a little bit harder for me to do. I've read that when you auditioned for Friends, you actually weren't going to audition because you were tied up with another pilot, but you ended up auditioning and you already knew the lines because you had so many friends who were auditioning for the part that you eventually got. What was it like for for you to audition for the part, having heard friends of yours do it in their way? Like you'd, you'd, you'd already heard so many versions of the character. Well, that, I mean, that was a, a very interesting time because I, uh, you know, had, had, had for years been doing the kind of jobs we were talking about and um, was off the market because I'd done another pilot that... Uh, that year, just for the money, the pilot was about baggage handlers in the year uh, 2194 at the LAX airport, and needless to say, it wasn't very good. Uh, and but what, what what that did was it rendered me off the market for that pilot season, and then all of a sudden, this wonderful uh, script at the time called Friends Like Us came around, and it just had a part in it that leapt off the page. Uh, as something that was very similar to me and had my rhythms. And it was about a guy who um, was sort of trying to uh, distract everybody from how miserable he was all the time by being funny. And so a lot of my friends, you know, the, you know, comedic actors, comedic out-of-work actors tend to gravitate towards one another and we would have lunch and hang out all the time. And this part came around and a lot of people saw that it was sort of similar to me and because I was off the market they had asked me to run the scene with them and it was and you know help them with their auditions and finally after the fourth person did it, i just said well listen i think i've got a really good line on this character why don't you let me, why don't you let me just do this scene for you and just take any choices that you like and uh, a couple of guys i did that for and they they did very well on those choices and got to network and got to the final levels and i was you know i was uh a little disappointed of course because i thought that the show was going to be uh, good, and I couldn't be on it. And then what ended up happening was some of the powers that be at the network and the studio saw the pilot that I did, the futuristic baggage handler show, and <laughs> decided it probably wasn't going to get picked up. So I got a phone call saying from my agent saying, you know, you have an audition for the show on Wednesday. And at that point, when I got that phone call, I knew, and I've never felt that way before in my life and probably never will again, I knew that I was going to get the job. I knew that it was going to change my life just even before I went in to read for it. Now, um, how did you get the part in Studio 60, which is in hiatus now, hoping it comes back? Um, and on that you play, this is a, a, a there's two movies that, re- there's two TV shows that recently premiered that are kind of like backstage at Saturday Night Live kind of shows. <clears throat> there's the comic one. Um, and then Studio 60 is more of a, a drama done by, you know, written by Aaron Sorkin, who who did The West Wing, which you had a part on for for, for, for one of the arcs. Um, so h- how did you end up playing the head writer on this show in Studio 60? Uh, well, uh, I had little or no interest in uh, returning to television because my theory at the time was I'd already been fortunate enough to be on one of the better shows, so why why go back? And I just completed this uh, TNT movie uh, that we shot in Canada called The Ron Clark Story, and I was in my hotel and my manager called and said that Aaron Sorkin had written a pilot about backstage at a Saturday Night Live type show. And I just immediately wanted to get my hands on it. And they emailed the script to me. And at about 2 o'clock in the morning in the business uh, center of one of these hotels, I just read it on the computer. And by the time I had finished it, I, I, I thought to myself, oh boy, I guess I'm going to have to do another television show. Um, because the character was so great and the writing was so wonderful. And Aaron Sorkin is one of the biggest freaky Friends fans in the world. It just happens to be that he's seen every episode like 15 times. And um, he, you know, uh, I guess was a, a fan of my work on that show. And then when I came to do The West Wing, which was a much more toned down version, a much more dramatic uh, performance than what I had done on Friends. So... Um, you know, for whatever for whatever reason, he he had written the the part for me, and um, the guy is slightly cynical. He's messed up. He's dark. He's uh, a genius. He's all the things that uh, that Aaron Sorkin is. And what the show, as these things tend to uh, these things tend to happen, 
over the last year, the show is that character has become sort of a combination of Aaron and myself. Yeah, and one one of the things that you, you guys have in common, in addition to being like smart and maybe a little cynical and funny and and all of that, you you also have uh, like a period of like drug problems in your background, as does your character. Um, and, and I wonder if that kind of helps link you to the character and to each other. I uh, you know I think so. Um, the the character in the pilot uh, was on Vicodin uh, because of back surgery, and that obviously left left up leapt off the page for me because I, I, I thought it, you know, afforded him to be a little freer and a little crazier in the pilot and uh, and a little darker. So, uh, you know, I've had my history with that and he's had his, his history as well. They're both very separate uh, histories, but, you know, they both, you know, there's a lot of that darkness in Hollywood. There's a lot of that, that, uh, that kind of history in writing rooms all over the place. So, you know, that, that just added to my interest in the project, that's for sure. Do you remember the first time you saw yourself on film or on video and how that jived or didn't jive with your self-image of yourself? Yeah, it's very interesting. I, you know, a lot of actors don't watch their own stuff and a lot of actors watch a lot of it and I'm, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, at first as a young actor when I was 16 or 17, I couldn't get enough of it. It was just, you know, it was just so much fun to be able to see my work on television and now I'm I, I'm less apt to watch it because I it, I still sort of watch it with that juvenile kind of eye you know I could be doing the most important scene in the world and I'm more concerned about what my hair looks like or you know what I'm wearing so um, it's a very bizarre profession us actors have uh, put ourselves into because you know we you can see it you know it's like in other professions, you're kind of submitting your work, and it's on a piece of paper, and you, people either like it or not, but it's your work. This is, it's you. Did you look like you expected to? Were you surprised at seeing yourself the way other people see you? Did I look like I expected myself to look? I, you know, I... Because I th- mir- mirrors I look... are different than, than cameras. <laughs> uh, they are. Um, you know, I... I think I probably looked like I thought I was going to look, but it, you know, it's what's going on in my head that's the problem. As I, as I said, I'm like pointing, like I'll, I'll look immediately at the at what I think are the the bad things before the, the good. Mm-hmm. That's why I try not to watch it uh, too often. Now, I know when you were growing up, your father did Old Spice ads, and for anybody who doesn't know or remember Old Spice, it was a kind of like aftershave and cologne. Um, it was really, really popular in in the sixties and and I think in the seventies too. So, so your your father was the guy who did the commercials on TV for Old Spice. Yeah, that's actually led to most of my problems because my father is the handsomest man in the world. <laughs> so uh, that's led to why I look at myself on TV in the first place, and also why I immediately go to the problems. But yeah, that that was uh, my. You know, a lot of you guys probably remember the. Uh, you know, there was that, that Old Spice commercial where the sailor has, like, a tote bag and he's whistling and all the women are, Right. You know. So so was it a lesson in what show business was like to have a father who was famous from commercials? Uh, well, it was an interesting lesson on all uh, fronts to have a father in this business because I got to see the highs and lows because he would, you know, he would have one year that was just off the charts successful and then he would have a year that wasn't. And, you know, he's one of those actors that have, you know, managed to work for 40 years in this business. Um, and, you know, I, I saw a lot of the highs and lows. I would see, like, him go out for pilots and either get them or not and, you know, what that what that kind of does to your attitude on a daily basis. So, you know, his, his big lesson to me was to make sure that there's something else in your life that is um, more important than, uh, than acting or you'll go bananas. And so I've tried to follow that, and I know that he uh, feels that way, too. So your mother was the uh, press secretary to Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. So yes. the, one one parent is exposing you to, like, you know, Hollywood, and the other to politics. What was your impression of the political world growing up? Well, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And she was around during you know, Jean Chrétien's liberal leadership campaign, and I was right there as a, you know— 12-year-old kid just watching all of that happen and watching, you know, uh, all those all those campaigns. And it was just fascinating. And, you know, it was bizarre because my mother was sort of in the public eye when I was a, when I was a kid as well, just from a completely different uh, arena. But, 
you know, I, w- I was fascinated by it as a kid and watching all these people gather together and celebrate all these politicians. It was really fun. Did you see her on TV a lot? Did she have to make a lot I of did. public statements? Uh, I did. I saw her. Uh, I saw her on TV a lot. You know, especially during the campaigns and stuff, because she was always kind of you know around. So it was really, it was really an interesting time. So you grew up in, a, in an environment environment where the p- people who you knew best, your parents, were on TV a lot. So I guess yeah. does that make it any more or less of a big deal to be on TV yourself? Well, the most interesting thing was, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Canada, in Ottawa, Canada, and. Uh, you know, with my mom, and the way that I would see my father on a regular basis was on TV. He would call me up and say, you know, I'm doing an episode of Mannix, or I'm doing an episode of this, and that's the way I got to kind of see my dad. So I, I really think I generated a huge respect for television and for the industry because of that. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Well, thank you. This was really fun. Matthew Perry speaking to Terry Gross in 2007. The star of Friends died last week at age 54. After a break, we'll hear from one of his Friends co-stars, Lisa Kudrow, who played Phoebe. And Justin Chang reviews Sofia Coppola's new film, Priscilla. I'm David Bianculi, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Molly C.V. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television history at Rowan University. We've just listened to our interview with Matthew Perry, who played Chandler Bing on the hugely successful TV show Friends. He died over the weekend at the age of 54. We thought we'd hear another interview with a Friends co-star, Lisa Kudrow. She played the quirky character Phoebe. When Terry spoke with her in 2003, she was starring in the film The Opposite of Sex, and Friends was in its final season. Let's begin with a clip from Friends. Matthew Perry's Chandler has begun a secret romance with Monica, but their friends find out. Here, Lisa Kudrow as Phoebe seduces Chandler in an attempt to force Chandler to confess to his romance with Monica. Hey! Hey! Ooh! Wow, that jacket looks great on you. Really? Yeah, the material looks so soft. Oh, hello, Mr. Bicep. <laughs> you been working out? Well, I try to, you know, squeeze things. Oh. <laughs> <Are> you okay? <laughs> well, if you really want to know, I, oh, I can't tell you this. <laughs> Maybe it's me. You can tell me anything. Well, actually, you're the one person I can't tell this to, and the one person I want to the most. What's going on? 
I think it's just, you know, that I haven't been with a guy in so long, and you know how sometimes you're looking for something and you just don't even see that it's right there in front of you, sipping coffee. Oh, no, have I said too much? <laughs> your timing, your comic timing is, is so good. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, talk about intuitive. Is that something that's intuitive or something that, that you worked on, that you were trained in? Oh, I think it's intuitive. I go back and forth on it because I think every actor, I think everybody has the the capacity for comedy, and everybody has the capacity for acting. But <clears throat> I don't know. I think this is interesting to me. I took a, you know, I was involved with the Groundlings, which is an improvisational sketch comedy group in in L.A. And in one of the classes, there was this actor who had worked a lot, and um, really good actor, and he was having a little trouble with the comedy he felt. That's why he was taking this class. And he asked me at one point, you know, you just, I don't know how to do it. And you're doing it and you're funny and I want to do that. And I don't know why, but somehow I knew. I said, yeah, but you're an actor. Just be in the scene and, and listen and then just respond. And I think it'll be funny. And he did and it got funny. He stopped trying. He relaxed into the comedy. And it feels like that's all it is. It's you got to just relax into <laughs> The more you're relaxed, the funnier it can be. The more open you are. I don't know. I, I tell you, I'm really inarticulate about this stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, I I'm not agreeing with you that you're right. inarticulate. Yeah, you but... are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> I heard it. Yeah. How do you feel about this being the last season of Friends? Is that is that a good thing for you? It's it's a mixed bag uh-huh. of emotions, you know. I, I I love TV. I like a TV schedule a lot, and um, I love everybody I'm working with. And um, it's a good show. People like it. People watch it. That's all good. Um, but it's fine that it's time to move on. I mean, honestly, I can't see doing this for another 10 years. You know, it has to end at some point. This is as good a time as any. What are some of the things that you think you'll miss and some of the things you won't? I'll really miss, I'll miss, you know, those five actors and, um, you know, the executive producers I've become, you know, friendly with. Um, I don't know that I'll miss, and I think I'll even miss Phoebe or being her, you know, like putting on those putting on that person because mm-hmm. that's what it feels like I, you know I'd want to say <laughs> putting on those clothes but I, not literally because I actually hate the clothes but just putting on that skin of Phoebe I'll, I'll miss that what, what, what do you hate about the clothes? <laughs> how unflattering they are maybe number <laughs> one uh, <laughs> it's not my style at all but um, uh And it's always tights, you know. I hate pulling up tights. It's very silly little things. But um, I don't know. I'll just, I'll miss it. And in a way, I've missed the Phoebe that she started off being, to be honest. Anyway, I miss being so, um, you know, unreasonably optimistic and cheerful about absolutely everything. Because that was nice. That was a nice thing to do every day. Is it kind of a relief from yourself to to do that? Yes, and a little of it seeps in, and I think it helps you cope with other things in your life better. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm, I actually have a hard time, you know, defining anyone as stupid or, you know, ditzy or any of that, because it, it's an easier life, and it maybe isn't so stupid. Is there anything in your life that you feel really connects to the lives of the characters on Friends? You know, like, did did you ever have, like, friends walking in and out of your house all the time and a small group of people that knew everything about each other and that were lovers with each other and all that stuff? No, not even in college. That was never part of my experience, to be honest, no. Did you have lots of friends or were, were you more more yeah. on your own? Not on my own. I have, I've always had, like a, um, like, a few good friends at a time. And then some acquaintances, you know. But, um, no, I never really had that core group Mm -hmm. of men and women, you know, that were just friends. Because I actually never really believed that. (laughs) I I honestly don't know that men actually like to be friends with women. 
Maybe they do now. Maybe they're different. But, you know, back when I was in college, it seemed like men were really only friends with women if there was a chance of, you know, some sex. Mm-hmm. But um, So, no, it really wasn't ever my experience. You know, there's been like a whole um, industry of show, shows inspired by friends. And, mm-hmm. I mean, there are times, and it's been like this for years, when you put on the TV and you feel like every half hour there's a new group of people in their 20s or 30s sitting on a couch uh, talking to each other and having affairs with each other. <laughs> yeah. It, is that bizarre for you to watch? In the beginning it was. Not bizarre. I just thought, wow. It was flattering. To be honest, it was flattering. And um, and then a little sad because I think TV does this all the time. I, I just read something the creator of Everyone Loves Raymond said that they think that you, you're establishing a new formula for TV success. And you're not. You've just hit on something with you know the casting and they click with the writer's sensibilities and you've created people and and lots of backstory for these people so they feel fleshed out and that's what it is it's not just oh let's just put six you know young people in a room see what happens (laughs) right lisa kudrow who played phoebe on the nbc sitcom friends speaking with terry gross in 2003 more after a break this is fresh air these days news comes at you fast but the truth Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2003 interview with Lisa Kudrow, who played Phoebe on the TV show Friends. After college, she thought she would follow in her father's footsteps and pursue a career in medicine and research. But then the urge to go into acting took over. I started with um, John Lovitz, who I grew up with. That's my brother's best friend and like a brother to me. And I had seen him struggle, you know, for a long time. And finally he was working. He got on Saturday Night Live. And uh, I just finally let him know, I think I'm going to pursue this now. And he said, great, go to the Groundlings. So I've taken a lot of acting classes. I studied it in college. I've never learned more than I learned from the Groundlings and doing improvisation. When he, when he told you to go there, did they just, like, let you in? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, they called up and said, what's, when I called them, they said, what's your experience? And I said, well, in junior high, <laughs> I, and so they said, yeah, here we're going to refer you to this teacher who we work with a lot, and her, she was a godsend. Her name's Cynthia Segetti, and she was the best thing that could have happened to me. How come? Because she didn't take no for an answer, and em- embarrassment was not an option. You just had to do it, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, um, you know, it's improvisation, and that could be scary, and some of the exercises look really silly, like lifting a disc, you know. And I thought, that's so actory and embarrassing. Um, I just can't. And the second class, I came in late, and she was just, you know, talking everyone through it. She wasn't, like, warm and nurturing, although she was warm. But she was, come on, do it. You can do it. Stop laughing. We'll know. We'll, we'll laugh. We'll tell you when it's funny. You know, just how to stay committed. She just forced you, sort of like with a gun to your head, mm-hmm. you know, on being louder and staying committed. And I'm watching these people lift a disc, and I'm so embarrassed for them, except for one guy who's doing it. And now I understand what being committed is. 
he was so committed that it wasn't embarrassing. He looked like he was lifting a disc. He wasn't overdoing it. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't commenting on it. He was just there acting like he's lifting a disc. And I understood what commitment was from that. Is this a disc like a discus thrower? It's a, it's, it, there's nothing there. You're right. pretending like, no, everyone's standing around in a circle and you're all working together to lift a disc. Oh, I see. I see. Mm-hmm. So it's a group and, exercise. Yeah. And, but there's this one guy who's doing it and he's not embarrassing to me. And, and I thought, all right, well, I got to be friends with that guy. That's for sure. And it was Conan O'Brien. Oh. Yeah. So we became friends, you know, from that class on. We were very close friends. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so I just kind of stuck with him because I thought, okay, he's got a handle on this. So um, how come you saw yourself as a comic actor? How how did you know that at least at the beginning it was going to be about comedy for you? Because I thought, wow, you know, the um, people in comedy don't seem to take themselves as seriously. I could handle that. I think I could handle that, being around those people. A lot of it was just about who would I have to deal with if I'm going to do this career. And, you know, that was also a big deterrent for so many years before I decided to do it. What were you afraid of in terms of the people? Just, uh, Pretentiousness? Um, not so much a pretentiousness as um, too otherworldly, too... Uh, you know, because I feel like they're genuine in their erroneous beliefs. That's how I felt about <laughs> it, you know. <laughs> what were the erroneous beliefs? Um, uh, just, uh, I don't know, a little too just anything goes. Because um, I, w- I was a really rigid kid and, you know, young adult. <laughs> Really rigid. And I'm not saying I was right back then. But that's just how I felt. Like, you know, these people are idiots, and I don't want to be one of them, and I don't want to be associated with them. What I came to find out was that they're not idiots, and everybody, I, I more than anyone else, could use a little lightening up, you know? <laughs> was one of your um, um, fears about actors was that sense of, like, elevating craft to an almost, like, religious level. Yes, thank you. That's exactly... <laughs> that was exactly what it was. And yeah. w- 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 what was your problem with that? Um, it didn't ring true to me at the time. I, I, it just felt like um, somebody trying... Yeah, pr- I mean, I think you were right when you said pretentious. I don't know why I rejected it. <laughs> so quickly that Hostility. was unfair. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It made me so angry at you. Um, no, I, maybe that was maybe that was part of it. It just didn't ring true. It was something that I just always rejected, and you know, I just lumped. I, I'm 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 very black and white, and especially then. So I'd see an actor or an actress on a talk show, and hate them. <laughs> you know and. Hate all their divorces and hate, you know, just how messed up they were and not seeing it, you know, behaving as if, and of course everyone would aspire to be me, you know, it's just, it really bothered me a lot. Do you think that the other women characters on Friends have been more sexualized than your character has been? Absolutely. Sure. And, and is that because yours is the more kind of comedic? Um, no, I think it's because I'm, I'm not as sexual as they are. I mean, I'm not as, uh, I don't project that as much as they do. So you think it's about you, the actress, not about the character? Yeah, I really do. I really do. Um, you know, there's no end to the amount of dating and, you know, sexual experiences that Phoebe refers to. So the opportunity was definitely there, but it's... I'm not comfortable mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. It's not any kind of, you know, like moral belief or I'm against it. It's not that at all. I'm personally not comfortable with that. So, you know, I don't like photo shoots. We did one early on where <clears throat> this one photographer who does stuff, and he did that famous um, shot of Jennifer on the cover of Rolling Stone where you see like a, a, like a fuzzy, blurry, ver- you know, part of her tushy. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just about the sexiest thing I'd ever seen. And I thought it was beautiful. And um, so we were all doing a shoot, the three girls, and one of the, it was that same photographer. I think it was before, you know, Jennifer's Rolling Stone cover, but he had us all doing different things that were kind of sexy and asked me to unbutton my top and keep unbuttoning it and opening it up just a little more. And as I was doing it, it felt awful to me. I didn't like the way it felt at all. I felt like taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. I just did, and I thought, what is this? All of a sudden, I'm like a, I, I don't know. It, it didn't feel right. I, I, you know, I'm like a, um, like a sex performer right now. <laughs> right. I, I have to be a sex performer for this photo shoot, and I wasn't comfortable with it. So what did you do? Did you say you're not comfortable and then button your shirt back up? Or did you say, well, you know, they're asking me to do this, and I'll be a good sport even though I don't feel comfortable? I was trying, it was more of, get comfortable with this, Lisa, come on, don't, you know, stop that prejudice you have against everything, maybe this is part of your old way of thinking, you know, um, and, and I tried, and I unbuttoned it, and I opened it a little, and I tried, and, <laughs> you know, it just didn't feel comfortable, and the kind of face you have to make to look sexy, oh, like, yeah. you know, opening your mouth a little and your eyes get really big and you purse your lips. That's like a comedy bit to me. <laughs> and I've even done it as jokes in photo shoots or Polaroids. I always, as a joke, do this. To me, it's a crazy face uh-huh. and it looks okay. It doesn't look crazy. That, that sexual pout. Yeah, and it doesn't look crazy. It looks like what all these women look like when they look really sexy or doing these photographs. So now when I see those, I think, wow, they, I, the amount of contortion <laughs> it took me to achieve that. I can't believe that's what you do without even thinking twice about it. Huh. That's really funny. Do you, yeah. do you know people who do that naturally, or do you think that whole so- style of sexual allure is, is almost always pure acting? Oh, I think there are people who it's pretty natural for. Mm-hmm. I mean, my husband has a pout to him, and he's sexy, and that's natural, can't help it. Everyone in his family, they're all French, you know, they just are sexy, and it's no act. But, yeah, so there are people like that. I know there are. But then there are others who, come on. Like, I know what you had to do to achieve that face <laughs> and that arch, and it's just, like, comp- so unnatural to me, unless you're in, you know— a bedroom. Well, um, it's just been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lisa Kudrow, who played Phoebe on the TV show Friends. She spoke to Terry Gross in 2003 during the show's final season. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film Priscilla. This is Fresh Air. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air. Arriving in theaters a year after the Oscar-nominated biopic Elvis, the new drama Priscilla tells the story of Priscilla Presley and her relationship with Elvis. It's the latest movie written and directed by Sofia Coppola, and it stars Kaylee Spaney, who recently won the Best Actress Award at the Venice International Film Festival for her performance as Priscilla Presley. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. When I first heard that Sofia Coppola would be making a movie about Priscilla Presley, I thought, well, of course. Who better than Coppola, with her empathetic portraits of life inside the celebrity bubble, 
like Marie Antoinette in somewhere, to turn Graceland into a young woman's gilded cage. Who better than the director of The Virgin Suicides and The Bling Ring to tease out the inner life of a teenager who seized what she wanted, in this case a romance with the biggest star on the planet? Remarkably, Priscilla, adapted from Presley's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me, didn't just live up to my expectations. It's Coppola's strongest movie in years. Intimate, queasily truthful, and piercingly sad. It begins in 1959, not long after 14-year-old Priscilla Beaulieu, played by Kaylee Spaney, has moved with her family from Texas to West Germany, where her dad, an Air Force captain, is stationed. One day a man approaches Priscilla and asks if she'd like to meet Elvis Presley. Elvis, who's 24, is doing his military service in Germany, and he regularly throws parties where he can meet and spend time with other Americans. Priscilla's parents warily agree to let her attend. At the party, where Priscilla is conspicuously the only minor, she's introduced to Elvis, who's played by Australian hunk Jacob Elordi from Euphoria. She's charmed by him, of course, and startled that he takes an interest in her. So, what, what, what are the kids back home listening to these days? Bobby Darren and Fabian. Any? <laughs> That's good. I, uh, I thought they might have forgotten about me. No. <laughs> what about you? You got a, you got a favorite song? Why are you gonna make me guess? Heartbreak Hotel. <laughs> what kids still lying, huh? Elordi's Elvis is entirely different from the flashier biopic version played last year by Austin Butler. This is a quieter, more interior Elvis, and also a more insidious one. He tells Priscilla how much he likes her, how much she reminds him of girls back home. Later, he gets her parents' permission to see Priscilla again, disarming their objections with his courtly southern manners and his claim that his intentions are honorable. They clearly aren't, even if the relationship remains chaste for now. They won't have sex until they marry years later. Even so, Elvis's manipulation of every aspect of their relationship is always apparent. Coppola's view of the situation is both complex and clear-eyed. She trusts us to be appalled by the imbalance of age and power between Elvis and Priscilla, but she also lets us feel the swoony disorientation of being swept up in a superstar's orbit. She shows us the cracks in Elvis's Prince Charming veneer right from the start, the way he lavishes Priscilla with attention and then suddenly withholds it. That cycle continues after Elvis returns to the U.S. and invites Priscilla to visit and eventually move in with him at Graceland. If her parents have any objections at this point, we don't see them. They go along with the arrangement, provided that Priscilla finishes high school in Memphis. Working with the cinematographer Philippe Lesourde and the production designer Tamara Deverell, Coppola gives us a Graceland that's gorgeous but stifling and often eerily hushed. Elvis is frequently away in Hollywood, tending to his flailing movie career and generating tabloid headlines about his flings with his co-stars. And long before he and Priscilla marry, we see Elvis's ugly side emerge, his habit of popping pills and sharing them with her, his bursts of temper and physical violence, his need to control her by dictating her hairstyle and wardrobe, to the point of reshaping her in his image. Coppola is such a precise filmmaker that she doesn't have to exaggerate any of this for us to feel sickened, or to sense Priscilla's deep loneliness. And the director has an ideal collaborator in Kaylee Spaney. She gives Priscilla an intense watchfulness, as if she were observing her own tragedy from the outside. At the same time, Spaney doesn't play Priscilla as a passive victim. We see her strength when she rebukes her husband for his philandering and his addictions. The birth of their daughter, Lisa Marie, offers only a brief respite from their unhappiness. As she's done in the past, Coppola makes subtly anachronistic use of music. Here, that includes covers of classic rock songs by the French band Phoenix, 
fronted by her husband, Thomas Mars. Notably, there are no Elvis songs, reportedly due to rights issues. Setback or not, it feels like the right decision in what is clearly Priscilla's story. That story is only partly told here. We don't see Priscilla's post-marital years, her friendship with Elvis until his death, or her own acting career. I'd happily watch a Priscilla sequel devoted to the naked gun years alone. Instead, Coppola brings this doomed love story to its most poignant possible conclusion. You leave this movie feeling sad and slightly dazed, perhaps like Priscilla herself, as the last of her illusions finally disappears. Justin Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film, Priscilla. On Monday's show, award-winning filmmaker Sofia Coppola tells us about her new film, Priscilla. It looks at the love affair and age difference between Elvis and Priscilla Presley from Priscilla's point of view. We'll also hear about Sofia's 30-year career and behind-the-scenes stories about some of her iconic films. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Adam Staniszewski. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David B. Inkuli. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.